Hi there, friend. My name is John Werner. I used to be a part of the largest cult in the United States. After studying the Bible, Christian history, and ministry, I set my sights on confronting the problematic nature of white evangelicalism in the United States. In 2019, I published my first book as a first step in addressing the subtle issues of this complex system. This podcast will continue that work under the same title. Welcome to The Cult of Christianity. On today's show, I have a quite literally a long lost friend on um, who went to the same uh, church as I did in high school. And uh, we've kind of fizzled out, haven't talked much, but I do know our paths uh, split off and took pretty different directions. So I'm really looking forward to uh, to getting to talk to him today and and talk about some uh, some interesting things we've learned in our adult life. So, Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, John. Long lost friend back again. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, thanks so much, man. Uh, you know, I it's it's interesting. We caught up a little bit before we started recording, but not too much. But um, yeah, uh, I, I I want to know so much about what's going on in your life now. But I think we'll get there later. Let's rewind and talk about how did you relate to Christianity the first eighteen years of your life? Yeah, well, um, sort of surprisingly for where I ended up later, I, I didn't have like a super churchy background. You know, I'm, I'm from the South. And so obviously there's, there's a certain amount of Christianity that just kind of seeps into the, into the soil down here in the, you know, the good old Bible belt. But I didn't really grow up going to church a lot. It wasn't really a significant factor or, or part of my life. Um, I did at one point, you know, go to kind of a fundamentalist Baptist uh, school for a little while in middle school that, well, that was crazy. But for the most part, it was, you know, it was all pretty normal and I didn't think about it much until, until I started getting into my teenage years, um, when I was about 16. Um, then I had the, the quote unquote, I guess, saved experience, um, where I became sort of an evangelical Christian. I, I, um, I had read the Bible when I was um, 16 and, and, you know, I kind of sort of uh, encountered Jesus sort of for the first time in reading the New Testament. Um, and that prompted me to, to, you know, start identifying myself as a Christian, to be baptized and to join um, my local sort of um, Baptist uh, evangelical um, church. And after a while, I would end up, you know, getting a little bit more zealous and I would end up migrating to the to the church um, in the Reformed tradition where where I met you, John. Yeah, what a time that was. Um, yeah, I remember, you know, I, I don't have the clearest memory from those days, but I do remember <laughs> you and you and I enjoying like kind of these, uh, dare I say, pseudo deep uh, theological uh, conversations, which were kind of I, I, I would I would assume kind of odd for people our age to have um but i, yeah, but I remember enjoying them I, yeah, it, it was odd but i remember enjoying them because we would get pretty deep into what you know probably deeper philosophy than we even realized we were talking about yeah that's true it, it you know it was odd because even though you know the situation we were in was very evangelical and there's a lot of people out there that have that evangelical background and that's very true but it was also a little bit odder than that um, because it was kind of a very particular, unique thing. And the, the ambiance, the atmosphere that we were in for, for people of our age was, was unusual where we were, you know, 
thinking about things in terms of these sort of weird esoteric, you know, theological beliefs. And, and there was a lot of pressure in that direction that was just kind of, you know, generally abnormal for, you know, a, a teenager in America in circa 2010 or, or whenever it was. Definitely, definitely. And like, I, I, you were, I remember, I remember kind of categorizing, I'm sure you would take this label as an honor, kind of categorizing you as a bit nerdy. Um, <laughs> and um, because you like to read so much. And, and I think that was like a, a thing that both you and I can share is like, there was like this heavy emphasis on reading. So we actually learned like a good amount of church history before we were even adults. Yeah, you know, that's true. In, a, in one way and kind of in another way, I kind of regret those days when I think about it because it's true. I was reading a lot, but, you know, a lot of the stuff that I really wish I had have read back then, I wasn't reading. So like I really had, a, you know, I wished, you know, I think back to those days and I think, wow, you know, instead of reading John Calvin for the fifth time, I really wish I had have read War and Peace or, you know, Crime and Punishment mm. or you know, all of Shakespeare, because that stuff kind of came later for me um, because I didn't have that growing up. And I wish that I had have used some of that intellectual power I had at the time for other stuff rather than just going over the same stuff in the reform tradition again and again and again in a hundred different books saying the same thing. Well, yes, I, I was going to say that is kind of the irony of it all, isn't it? You're reading a lot, but what are you reading? Basically the same way, same thing said a, a million different ways. You know, I was at the time, this blows my mind now, but I was a, a, a John Owen fan. And, oh, yeah. uh, and it's funny because I'm like, that guy, all of his writing is basically the same idea written down over and over again. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's dense too. This is, you know, this is difficult stuff for uh, a teenager to, you know, I would say be reading. I mean, John Owen, I've, I read, you know, the death of death and the death of Christ, I think was one of his books that I read and I read several others. And, you know, for people that don't know, this is a, a Puritan, you know, from, from England and, you know, like the 1600s, this is not an easy read. Not at all. And like more intellectual. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of in the more reformed evangelical space. Like there are a lot of like simplified versions and, and such, but, mm -hmm. but it's all basically communicating very, very uh, Protestant ideas. Um, and I'm sure we'll get more into that a bit later, but so I don't really know what happened after, you know, I, I turned 18 and went off to Bible college and I, I don't really know. I, I remember I remember just following, you know, each other on social media and seeing you had like either an interest in Catholicism or were becoming Catholic. So when did when did you decide you were Catholic? Yeah, so I ended up converting um to Catholicism in 2013. Um I'm not sure how long this took place after you had had left the church that that we were both a part of, but I basically went right from that church into the the Catholic church, you know, it wasn't, um, was not a fun experience doing that because, um, there is kind of a trend in evangelicalism nowadays that, you know, kind of this idea that evangelicals and Catholics need to be friends. And in general, evangelicals are a lot more tolerant of Catholics and vice versa than they used to be. But that really wasn't the case at church that you and I went to because there was a huge <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because you're just putting it so nicely. Yeah, I mean, we had a, a yearly reformation conference, you know, celebrating like the foundational 
stuff of Protestantism and kind of our church was defined against Catholicism in a way that not a lot of evangelical churches are anymore because now they're more worried about, you know, atheism or evolution or, or whatever. But our church was still very much worried about Catholicism. And so in that environment, leaving and becoming Catholic was not fun because that's basically like, well, you've just left God's camp and you've joined Satan's camp. So congratulations. Welcome to hell. You know, it's that that kind of thing. So I, I did get officially excommunicated. Um, hey, the- me too. I got a letter recently. <laughs> Good, nice. Good job. You got it. Re- wait, recently? I mean, recently for me is like a couple years ago, but yeah. <laughs> well, it seems like they, wow, that's still, they were still thinking about you and they decided to let you know just, just how, uh, I guess, unwelcome you are. Well, that's, that's very yeah. pleasant of them. Well, so did you get a cur- just point of clarification? Did you get like excommunicated or more? Um, because my letter was like, basically like, we just don't recognize you as a member anymore. Like it was put very uh, tamely. Um, It was tame ish but um i was told uh, it was it was a very long letter that said that i'm i'm can no i'm no longer welcome there i'm no longer a part of christ's kingdom at, at xyz church um and yeah i mean it was it was polite like it's not like they literally insulted me in the letter but you know it was clear that it was i was really being kicked out of the the church was not welcome there further and it, apparently, I was told that it was announced at the church that I had that I had left wow. the faith and, and joined along with another friend of mine that was there at the same time that did the same thing. Um, yeah, so it, it, pretty close enough, you know. It was it was they they didn't just make it vicious, but it was yeah, it was for real. That's awful. I have no idea if they've talked about me publicly or not. I don't really care. Um, but <laughs> um, that's 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 kind of heartbreaking, especially because. Uh, you're not leaving Christianity. You're just going to, uh, you you've just converted to Catholicism, correct? Yeah, you. Well, you'd think, but um, you know, a lot of um, a lot of people, basically, especially in the Reformed tradition that we came from, you know, they don't really recognize the 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 definition of Christian for them is a lot shorter or a lot tighter than a you know what other people might think of as as Christianity. Um, you know, so they would exclude, you know, like Catholics, Orthodox people, they think too liberal people that don't uphold justification by faith alone. Um, so you would think, but I mean, for them, it was clear that, you know, I was basically on my way to hell. That's wow. So that's pretty hostile environment to make a decision like that. So what, what was kind of going on in your head? Were you just convinced that Catholicism was more accurate? Kind of what was your personal um, decision? What was your thought process like as far as deciding that? Yeah. Um, it, there are some things looking back on it about that thought process. There's parts of it that I think today, like, yeah, that was a good reason. And there's parts of it that I think, you know, maybe that wasn't such a great reason so some of the good reasons were that, you know, I was genuinely wanting to be able to extend Christ's love to everyone. Um, because, and I'm, I'm sure you've mentioned this on your podcast before, the church that we were a part of, the Reformed tradition, you know, believes that, you know, really Christ's love is only for a special elect group of people that Christ died for. Um, and so I was very attracted in Catholicism to to that basically, you know, think of the image of like Mother Teresa, the sacred heart of Jesus, this kind of universal love of Christ for everyone in the theology. I wanted to be able to to affirm that. 
And I also wanted something um, more deeply uh, rooted in history, more international, more diverse. Those were some of the good reasons. Um, Some of the more maybe flawed reasons was that, you know, there's a very, there's a lot more people that leave the evangelical reform tradition and become Catholic than you'd probably think. Uh, And there's a lot of people in American Catholicism that are really prominent that come from a reformed Protestant background. And kind of the reason is because in our, you know, reformed Protestant tradition, you know, the Bible is where it's at, so to speak. You know, the Bible is upheld as the infallible guide to all faith, all morals. It's, it's, you know, it's everything. That's that's what you base your life on. That's God's word. God's not going to speak to you in a dream or in something else. You have to follow the Bible. But, you know, the problem is there, there can be a lot of people uh, in that group that start to have doubts because they start to see, well, you know, the Bible is really hard to interpret. Or, you know, a lot of people that want to believe the Bible, you know, look at it and come to three totally different conclusions. And how do we know we really are interpreting the Bible the right way? Because the Bible doesn't literally audibly speak back to you. How do we, how do we know we're, we're following this stuff the right way? And then if they dig a little deeper into church history, they might think, well, you know, how do we even know we have the right books in the Bible to begin with? And so I kind of went down that road. A lot of people did. And so there's kind of a whole um, whole group of kind of Catholic apologetics that's aimed at people kind of going through that crisis. And basically they say, well, you have the Bible and that's great, but look, you're so confused. You don't know what it says. And basically they say, in a certain way, they substitute the church kind of for the Bible in the sense that, well, we don't really know what the Bible is saying. We need the church to tell us that. And sort of the church becomes that rock of certainty. And so at that time, you know, I needed certainty. I wanted to believe, you know, I wanted to know the truth. And me trying to just figure it out with the Bible didn't seem like a great plan. And I thought, you know, an infallible church that never changes, thats that's got to be where it's at. And so that was a whole lot of the reason why I converted to Catholicism, wanting that certainty that could come from a church that can tell you what its teachings are, as opposed to just kind of a more passive Bible that maybe we're not even interpreting the right way. Wow. Thanks for answering that. That actually, that's super clarifying because I, I can see that, you know, in, in my memories of you too, like there was like a, a real thirst to get to the bottom of it, right? <laughs> be like, all right. Like, let me let me square every circle. Let me, you know, make sure this is all right. And yeah, in, in Reformed or even, well, Reform, ref, the Reformed branch of evangelicalism is much more like um, willing to do some intellectual work there than yeah. like maybe mainline evangelicalism is. Um, oh, yeah. So so it makes sense that you can kind of have a progression from, oh, Jesus is cool. Wait, what? How does this make sense? And then you keep going down that line, and eventually you kind of get to the church that says, "Listen, we're old. <laughs> we, <laughs> we've been at we've we've been at these questions for a while. Um, you know, we've got it. You know that that kind of m- makes sense. Am I am I hearing your story correct there? Exactly. Yeah, exactly like that. Yeah, definitely. I've always I'm a very intellectual person. That's that's just the way God made me. That's just how I am. And so I would have never fit into an evangelical environment that had the brain in completely an off position. That's why I had to leave my original more Baptist environment and go towards a reformed environment to begin with, because I think you would probably say it's fair to say that they are the more intellectual side of the of the evangelical um, um, church. 
Well, if nothing uh, that, else, they're convinced. If, if nothing else, they're convinced they are for sure. Exactly. Yeah. They they at least you know they they pride themselves on the bookishness, and that was good for me because yeah. that's that's what I like. But I didn't kind of just stop. I kept going, and that got me in trouble. And then I keep going, and I keep going, and I keep going, and it just keeps you know you you think too much after a while. You know, it's like I wasn't ready to just kind of stop at, at some place. I just kind of kept following where my thoughts were leading me and I kept kind of trying to tease things out to their logical conclusion. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. So so you correct me if I'm wrong, you still identify as Catholic, correct? Yes. I, I am a Catholic. I'm I'm a Christian. I'm I'm you know I'm a follower of Christ. I, I affirm those things, but you know I've had a really you know I've had a hard journey. And I've had to ask a lot of hard questions about the viability of faith, um, specifically like my pet issue is, you know, about the confronting what I think are, you know, the crimes and bad actions committed by Christianity, you know, historically. And so I've, I've really had to wrestle with with my faith and, and with with, you know, who I am. You know, for my own part, you know, I believe in a future for humanity and Christianity where Christianity embraces, you know, sustainable, just, tolerant, and humanistic values. Um, because I think that is, in fact, what ultimately flows from Jesus's message. And I want to work towards that. Uh, a particular passion of mine is my my belief in universalism, which is the idea that ultimately everybody will be saved and there's no such thing as an eternal hell of torture and, and damnation. That's just one example. But so yes, I'm a Catholic. I affirm that. I, I believe in Jesus Christ, but I believe in you know a Catholicism and in a Christianity that's 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 good and just and tolerant. And I'm I'm trying to work towards that in my own way, small way. Cool. Well, honestly, due to your caveats, I can vibe with you better. You know what I mean? Um, because I think I think I think it's unfortunate. It's it it kind of cuts both ways. But because our language and our culture is ever so simplistic when it comes to labels um it's it's kind of like i mean even when i was studying to be a pastor i didn't like it when people would ask me am i a christian and i had to say yes you know like there was like exactly. this burden i felt um by saying exactly yes. and so 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 i appreciate you saying yes but dot 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 you know that's actually like shows something to me that is uh more enjoyable to be around (laughs) (laughs) yeah well i mean the way i look at it is i mean i I appreciate you know that we have to have labels and that's and and we have to tell things about ourselves but i mean whether when i hear someone if i'm a catholic and i hear okay this other person is a catholic so if you were catholic and that's the only thing i knew about you that literally tells me nothing about how i think our values match up because you know just from my personal experience I connect with, you know, I have more in common with somebody from a completely different religion that's working for a just, a tolerant, a peaceful world than I do with somebody in my own tradition that's a fundamentalist, that's that's paranoid, that's angry, or, or what may have you. So I, I, I also am kind of, you know, I kind of cringe at the labels a little bit because the label Catholic is important, but it's not as important as my sort of you know, my, I guess my humanistic values. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, that's cool. So, so as far as how you view your faith and spirituality now contrasted to when you were younger, is it just where your values are? Would you say that's the biggest contrast? Oh boy. Um, well, it, it's more than just values. I mean, it's also a lot about the mindset. I mean, 
back in the days that you know that we knew each other i i think it's perfectly fair to characterize me as 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 a zealot you know somebody that was in in the wrong way you know somebody who was kind of an extremist you know i look back on myself in a lot of those earlier times and you know my beliefs were you know often verging on the fanatical um so and i and i expressed my faith in ways that was confrontational that was you know sometimes mean spirited um and of course you know i'm picking that vibe up sometimes from people around me but you know ultimately the buck stops with me and so the changes between me now and then are, are really kind of just a change in in the type of values yeah that i that i um believe in but also just kind of in my personality i you know i had to go through really hard experiences to get more sympathy for other people, to understand other people's perspective, and just to get a little bit more, more humble. Um, so all of that is, that's kind of a painful, you know, pruning process. I guess it's all about the, that's the process of, I guess, trying to grow up and trying to be wiser than, than you used to be. So my faith now is a much more, you know, sort of skeptical, grounded kind of um, emphasis on what I think is good, as opposed to a more sort of dogmatic approach to things. Wow. Well, thank you for being so vulnerable. It's never fun to admit uh, how ugly our past <laughs> is. And uh, oh, yeah. I have to do it. I have to do it often, you know, and uh, it's, it's, it can be rather painful. So thank you for doing that. I, I appreciate that. Um, I, I'm already very much enjoying where you've landed. It's making my heart kind of happy, you know, because again, like it's been a decade or so since I've right. talked to you. <laughs> so it's, it's cool to see where where that you've that you've landed where you have it makes me pretty happy oh well thank you for for saying so yeah i've had to i've had a lot of really um painful moments where i've had to look and kind of recognize how bad you know past actions you know were because there's been times when i've ran into other people that there's been a similar space and time since we've last talked like the one between you and i like people that knew me back then and you know, I just, they, they talked to me and I realized, you know, I was an absolute jerk or, or I just, you know, badgered them. And there's even been people I've met that I realized, you know, they were way better off before they met me back then, because I've even, you know, found, you know, recognized that there are certain people from when I was younger that, you know, I influenced for the worse and would have been just better off if I hadn't have ever influenced them at all. And that is really um, painful to to recognize, and so I I, I try not to do that. <laughs> well, good on you. I mean, recognizing it is obviously a very important first step, and yeah, it's something I've also yeah I I have to cringe at the effect I've had on others, and I think that's, but I think it's almost beautiful, right, to be able to like comprehend that because if you couldn't comprehend that, it probably means you wouldn't be even worried about how your behavior impacts others now and obviously you and i are very concerned <laughs> about <how> yeah <laughs> behavior impacts, yeah i couldn't agree uh, more absolutely let's get into uh let's get into some of the the fun stuff shall we because i i've i've i'm very familiar with protestantism and uh and evangelicalism but Less so Catholicism, only kind of in an academic sense. I have been to Mass. I used to go to ma evening Mass when I was at Bible College just for something different. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I kind of, I, I know the basics. But I think you'll definitely have uh, kind of the academic and personal knowledge to bring to this conversation better than I can. Um, 
this might be a weird way to start, but I think one of the easiest ways to talk about Catholicism is actually kind of to talk about Protestantism first. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, so you and I both know this, but but I'm sure you could articulate it better. When did the Protestant movement begin? Yeah, so Protestantism began in um, Western Europe in the in the 1500s. You know, there was a time in which you know Western European culture through the Middle Ages was. Um, basically entirely Catholic. And through that time period, there was a lot of people and a lot of movements that kind of wanted to see the, the Catholic Church change in, in a variety of different ways. Um, Protestantism was one such movement, but it's kind of a movement that, that stuck, um, uh, as it were. Um, so the, the defining kind of person and event, you know, with, with Protestantism is a German, um, monk and originally a Catholic priest, Martin Luther, who um, sparked the, the Protestant um, protest movement. Um, and it started spreading out from, from Europe across the 1500s from there. You know, so originally Protestantism primarily consisted of, you know, originally followers of, of Martin Luther, his Lutheran followers and followers of the French reformer, John Calvin. And they emphasize, you know, things like scripture alone, faith alone and salvation. But, you know, gradually, you know, Protestantism sort of become becomes like an onion. You know, it just kind of has different layers um, beneath it because Protestantism prides itself on, you know, the believer's right to interpret scripture for himself. And that has led to a lot of different um, uh, expressions and, 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 and their own angles on Protestantism so that a lot of different denominations and Protestant traditions formed in Europe and America over the past, um, you know, 500 years, you know, you go all the way to something like, you know, Pentecostalism or, 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 you know, Protestant churches can look very different from each other because there's been so much evolution over that 500 year period since the Protestant Reformation started. But the, the key bedrock foundations of, of Protestantism are generally that emphasis on the Bible being our, our guide to, to the faith and the belief that, you know, some a person, a believer approaches Christ, you know, not through a priest, not through a church, but but through himself personally uh, in the emphasis on salvation by faith alone. But Protestantism is one of those things that the more it morphs, the more it changes, it can start to sort of be difficult to apply one label to it. Absolutely. Yeah. Good job. That's yeah. Martin Luther and John Calvin are definitely the two biggest figures to know. Um, and uh, yeah, because, you know, before... I mean, you're right. There, there, there had been movements and sects of uh, of Christianity that looked kind of different, but in general, there was Eastern Orthodox and Catholic Church. I mean, after the schism, like that was like kind of it. <laughs> you yeah, know? That was, but yeah, that was pretty much umbrellas. it. Um, and so yeah, you would have like little different groups that that came out throughout history, but the Protestant movement is like the you know, if you're wondering why do we have hundred plus denominations in the u.s it is because of the the spark of protestantism is what really started everything and and what were what were some of the things martin luther was reacting to yeah um a lot of different things so the the initial impetus was the the catholic church in um the place and time where he was at in 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 middle germany and saxony in the, the 1500s uh selling kind of religious favors kind of the church being overly greedy um, but people also wanted a church um, that was more ethically just because there was a lot of corruption in the church at that time. Um, people were concerned about the ways in which the Catholic church was promoting um, superstition 
at that time, there were a lot of um, sort of, uh, I'll use the word cult, a lot of uh, cults of the saints. Like there was a lot of superstition about various saints and about relics of the saints. And there was kind of a longing for, you know, we have maybe drifted too far away from what the message of Jesus was supposed to be. And we need to get away from all these you know, like extra things that have kind of uh, the Pope, the this, the that, that have kind of clinging to the biblical message and preventing us from seeing Jesus. So it was this desire to sweep away the things they thought that Catholicism had introduced that they thought were were extra. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the indulgences was definitely like kind of, if you will, the, the headline. Um, but yeah, there was there. I think just culturally there was like this sort of you know. Um, there's people are slowly becoming more literate people are uh you mm -hmm. know being able to kind of uh not depend on hierarchies and leadership as much as they used to have to um and so i think it was kind of a good setting for something that's a little more at least appears a little more uh like anarchy i think there was an appeal like a cultural um uh expectation for something like that to happen Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, nothing, nothing comes out of the blue. Everything is always going to be contained within kind of the culture that it's in and, and Protestantism. It was the reason why it, it had its success is because it was, the time was sort of ripe as Europe was transitioning out of the middle ages. And people were, like you said, becoming more literate. There was a rise of a merchant class um, that was less, you know, bound to the medieval uh, Lord and, and peasant dynamic and um, Protestantism was kind of uh, fit for the for the changing times, as it were. Definitely. Um, another thing you brought up is the Pope. So the, this this question will probably help get us going on some of that topic. So what is the Catholic view of the origin of church? And can you contrast that with kind of more Protestant ideas of how the church started? Oh, yeah. So the, the Protestant and Catholic ideas of the church are very, very, very different. And in fact, that's kind of maybe the, the crux of some of their differences. So standard Catholic idea, Catholics believe that the church was founded by Jesus Christ himself personally, and that Jesus would have founded the church. He would have set up its, its core structure and, and ordained its, its leadership. And so for Catholics, you know, the, there's this personal touch of that, that the, the church today is a continuation, you know, of the church that was founded by Christ. The Pope is the, the person who the, the Catholic Church believes is the, the, the main head honcho, so to speak, over the church. Catholics believe that Jesus' main disciple, Peter, was, was the first um, Pope, and that, there's, that the, the Popes are all in a line of succession coming from Peter. And the church has a lot of authority. It has the authority of, of Christ itself, and it has sort of an official, defined international structure. Very different from a Protestant understanding, because Protestants, I think their idea of church starts with just their local church. You know, that's just church to them, you know, the local communal assembly of, of believers. Protestants are a lot less likely to think of the church in international transhistorical terms in the way um, Catholics do. You know, Protestants kind of tend to have a mentality that, you know, if there's three people that are together loving Jesus, that's the church. You know, the church is wherever the people are. Catholics don't really think of it that way. The church is wherever the structure that Jesus established is, if that makes sense. It does, yeah. You could almost sum it up like for the Catholics, the church is the building to some extent. <laughs> you know, not to not not literally, of course, but but they but there is like a very structural nature to Catholic Church 
that um yeah protestants it's more uh it's more it's kind of all over the place certainly there's more liturgical and more structured versions of protestantism um but they are not they don't have the same kind of explicit hierarchies that the catholic yeah. church does yeah exa- yeah that's that's pretty accurate um and if not the if not the building then at least you know the hierarchy itself kind of can define the church in catholicism yeah and so so for them yeah literally the current pope is in not like bloodline succession but in um but in a almost spiritual succession of peter is that is that accurate to say absolutely yes the the pope is considered the successor of saint peter he's considered to um sit on the the throne of saint peter exercise the the authority of saint peter um there's a lot of um symbols um about peter that are associated with the pope and generally the pope's um ministry is is called the the, the petrine ministry after after peter so yes absolutely gotcha here's uh, here's something i wasn't planning on asking you but i i just popped into my head uh protestants don't usually talk about uh the saints so to speak right because we would just say peter we wouldn't typically we like i'm still protestant um but (laughs) uh, (laughs) they i I can't say they for both but but people from uh protestant backgrounds like typically they'll go um you know they'll just say names peter mary whatever um, but there's sort of like a an honor bestowed, uh, I think, veneration you would say, um, towards uh, certain certain characters in church history. Uh, can you speak more to that? Oh yeah, um, yeah. Catholics love their saints. <laughs> so in Catholicism, there's there's a huge emphasis on sharing in Christ's um, ministry and in His life. And maybe this is something that is a little bit more of a positive aspect of of Catholicism. You know. In the Protestant background, you know, Jesus is way over there and we are way over here, his kind of his humble followers. And while that's certainly true in terms of like Christ's divinity, Catholicism tries to, to talk about our sharing in his mission a lot more, more viscerally. And so there's even this idea in Catholicism that saints are sort of metaphorically an altar Christus, another Christ, somebody whose Christ's power and, and ministry flows through in, in a powerful way. And they're kind of conduits, as it were, for for Christ's life. And so there's kind of a Protestant saying that, you know, the only two arms Jesus has in the world right now are yours. You know, Catholicism takes that really literally, that Christ actually works through the saints. Um, And so the saints deserve honor and and, um, they deserve to be our our objects of emulation because they show what Christ um, working through a human being looks like. Now, Protestants, you know, especially in like the more traditional Protestant traditions, they get really scared with that because it sounds a lot like maybe worshiping a human being or putting them on on a really, really high pedestal. But it's hard to get away from that completely because people really need heroes. Uh, and they, it's a natural human emotion to emulate people. So, I mean, the ways that, that Protestants um, look at certain people, especially in our, our tradition, the tradition we were in, like, like John Calvin and Martin Luther, it's not really that different from the way Catholics would look at a, sta- look at a saint. Um, so sometimes the differences can be over-exaggerated, but saints have that official sort of liturgical role in the Christian life for, for um, a Catholic. In the Catholic mindset, a saint is is the good angel on your shoulder. You know, they're an active part of what they view the Christian life is. Yeah, 
I really want to start going on tangent tangents about like spirituality and mysticism right now because I think that <laughs> actually plays in plays into that point very um directly. But I'm gonna move on and maybe we'll circle back to that. Um the it, one of the biggest differences also that's easy to spot, um, you know, how do Protestant and Catholic Bibles differ and and how does the interpretation process work differently between Catholics and Protestants? Yeah, um, the interpretation differences are bigger than the Bible differences, but the Bible differences are there because Catholics and Protestants have uh, a different Old Testament, as it were. Or I should say, everything that's in the Protestant Bible is in the Catholic Bible, but the Catholic Bible has a few extra books in the Old Testament. Um, frankly, I think Catholics make a much bigger deal about this than, than it actually is. I mean, yes, there's differences, differences are important, but it doesn't really, um, constitute the, the heart of the matter. And the new testaments between Catholics and Protestants are, are the same. They're identical. Um, there are multiple different Catholic, uh, modern English translations of the Bible. And it's not at all unusual to see Catholics, even in an official, you know, sort of church context using, you know, traditional Protestant, you know, versions like the NIV. Before, sorry to interrupt, but before we get no, into sure. that, uh, just just so my memory is correct, because this is, it might be curious to someone less familiar with the Bible, like, you're right, it's only Old Testament, um, the Apocrypha, as it's called sometimes, um, and it's uh, the story of Maccabees, the Maccabees is in there. Mm-hmm. What else, what else do they have that the Protestant don't? Might yeah. So there's, um, there's first and second Maccabees. Uh, there's the book of, uh, Judith. Um, right. two books have extra portions to them. So the Catholic versions of the book of Daniel and the book of Esther are, are longer. Uh, and then there's the book of Baruch, the book of wisdom and the book of Sirach. Um, yeah. so basically Sirach and wisdom are a lot like Proverbs, um, Baruch is more like a prophetic book. Um, and, uh, Judith, uh, oh, and I forgot Tobit. Judith and Tobit are more like Jewish folk tales, um, similar to, gosh, you know, kind of, uh, kind of like fables, Esther. kind of like, yeah. a yeah, similar to, to Esther. Exactly. And then the Maccabees is a historical account of, um, events that took place in, um, Israel in, in the Hellenistic, um, period. Um, events which are actually the originating of the the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah. Right. Yeah. So um, the there it is kind of interesting that they're different because they don't really need to be, as far as I can tell. Like the content is not super. Like you know, to me, there's nothing in. I from my memory of reading the Apocrypha, I was like, yeah, not, none of this seems to like destroy protestantism by any means uh yeah seems pretty uh, consistent with the rest nothing too crazy there there are some things in there that um early protestants you know did not like that they thought showed things going in too much of a catholic direction uh, uh, for instance um the maccabees does portray um people praying for the souls of the dead um, which is right. something that, that Catholics do and Protestants don't. But at the same time, it's it's not it's nothing that sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for taking the time to go through that. I just know not all my listeners are as familiar with the Bible, so it's it's good to kind right, of right. be like, yeah, there's some there's some differences, but it's not. This is not the issue between Catholics and Protestants. I wouldn't say right, right. But, you were, but you're cor- you're correct to say it's a lot about interpretation. 
Right, yeah. So you'll never flip to one of those. There's no portion of those Catholic books of the Bible that says, by the way, Catholicism is true. There's nothing like, you know, sticks out like that. But the interpretation, yeah, is, is pretty serious because Catholics, the Catholic idea is that interpretation first and foremost belongs to the church. So in interpreting difficult passages of scripture, at least a traditional Catholic, the first thing they're going to say is, what does the church say? What has the church taught about this? What are the saints said? Um, meanwhile, a Protestant is more likely to either say, what do I think? Or what do the people immediately around me think about this? Um, Protestantism can kind of interpret things more on the fly. And again, things are going to be very different, you know, across different types of Protestant churches. But um, interpretation is a much more of an individual existential effort as opposed to Catholicism. Things are rooted in the authority of of the church. And frankly, you know, Catholics look to the church for the church teaching. They don't really dig around in the Bible for answers in a lot of the same ways that, that Protestants do. Yeah. It's kind of funny because like, it's almost like on paper they're miles apart, but then in practice it almost works out kind of the same way. I will say, yeah, there's there's a bit more, you know, I, I think they would say the Holy Spirit give, grants you the Protestants would say uh, that the Holy Spirit grants you the power to be able to interpret proper, properly. So if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're probably not interpreting properly. Um, I've heard that a lot. Right. I don't really know what that means, um, <laughs> but I've heard but I've heard it a lot. Um, it's it's, and, it's impossible uh, to verify. Right. Yeah. And and Catholics. Yeah. I mean, there's a joke that like, oh, I'm Catholic. I've never read the Bible. You know, that's <laughs> kind of the the joke that comes out of it. But yeah. So, you know, like you could not. It, most Catholics would certainly frown upon someone just coming up with an interpretation and posting a blog about it, uh, that especially if it was antithetical to what the church has taught. Whereas Protestants might be like, well, that's wrong. But but it's not wrong because they're violating the church teaching. It's wrong because of some other reason we're going to make up. Yeah, yeah, generally. Yeah, that's that's helpful. Yeah, so, and then this probably also manifests in, uh, you know, what are some of the differences in clergy? Oh, that's a big difference, too. Uh, that's one of the more noticeable um, differences, because, I mean, you know, by and large, in most Protestant churches, the the pastor or the preacher or whatever title he uses in the in the Protestant Church of Record, he you know he's just kind of one of us. You know, he's sure he, he you know you probably respect him a lot. You know, you you're sure you look up to him, but fundamentally, the pastor in the Protestant Church is is one of us. You know, he usually has a family that that worships there in in the the, the church with him. Um, you know, sometimes he came from a career that, you know, and maybe he'll go back to that if this whole preaching deal doesn't work out, you know, he's one of us, but Catholicism has a more stark difference between the laity, the, the regular folk and, and the clergy, the priest, um, becoming a priest in, in Catholicism is, you know, it's really serious business. Um, it involves in the Roman Catholic church, you know, taking a, a vow of celibacy to, to never marry, um, they're usually visibly set apart by wearing, you know, uh, priestly garments that identify them as priests. And there's an idea in Catholicism that, you know, priests have, as it were, a sacred power. That that sounds kind of, probably sounds a little crazy from a Protestant perspective to hear. But in Catholicism, priests receive a sacred power through being ordained. That that same power that Jesus gave to his um, apostles that kind of flows through them and they have a power to 
to forgive sins in Christ's name, to, to consecrate the Eucharist, um, and to serve as Christ's uh, representative um, in, in the church. Um, so he's not just another one of us, so to speak. There's something that marks out the priest um, as different. And it's not ultimately about him. It's not that he read a bunch of books. It's not this. It's that power that comes through the sacrament of holy orders, the sacrament of ordination, that sort of puts the priest for most Catholics in kind of a different league. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, most, I would say most evangelical, I mean, there's certainly, you know, the problem with evangelicalism is it's kind of become a very broad umbrella, but um would say you have to be ordained to be a pastor and then they'll kind of spiritualize talk about yeah the the ordination the laying on of hands or whatever they do there there's usually an element of like kind of divine authority that's that they claim um but it's quite different than the methodology that uh catholics use in their clergy where it's it's a very it's a very serious matter that they're like yeah like you said there are there's a certain level of sacredness and sacrament that has to take place in order for that kind of divine right absolutely yeah it's just like turning up the 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 knob a couple notches of that divine authority and it's even more so when you talk about um bishops and for people that that don't know so basically the the catholic church the has there's sort of a two tier structure. There's there's your local um your local bishop your local priest at, at whatever local Catholic church, but bishops is sort of the higher order of the clergy. So every priest is a priest serving under a bishop. And in Catholic sort of theology, the bishops are the sort of the successors of of the apostles, as it were. And so a bishop has even more authority because in a sense you know, a priest, a priest's authority is very much constrained by his, his bishop. Um, and the bishop, every uh, local area, you know, generally has, has a, has a bishop over it. There's a, there's an archbishop of Atlanta. There's, you know, an archbishop of New York. There's an archbishop of, of Los Angeles. Uh, and bishops are generally answer, answerable only to the, the head bishop, which is um, the pope. Yeah. So it's like a very detailed hierarchy. And like in some ways it kind of it it just distributes the power lower the farther down you look, but obviously has the inverse effect where the Pope has a lot of power over the church. Oh yeah. The Pope um the Pope has basically unlimited power over the church. There are very few things that um the Pope cannot do. Uh, just uh, you know, we'll we'll go back to contrasting in a minute. But just just out of my own curiosity, how do you feel about that hierarchy structure personally? Yeah, well, it has its pluses and it has its minuses um, or its negatives. Um, a plus would be that that structure, you know, is a lot of the reason why Catholicism is still after two thousand, you know, after this long period of time is still here, still a driving force in Western culture, still the largest religious institution on the planet. You know, all these Catholicism probably wouldn't have survived without that hierarchy, you know, across so many centuries of conflict and just all kinds of terrible, the black death, you know, whatever the the case might be. So it makes things, you know, efficient and it makes things work sometimes in that respect. The downside is, well, exactly what you would think it would be for giving people too much, you know, power. There can be abuses of power. There can, it's not at all um, democratic. Um, it's, uh, it can, you know, lead to a situation in which people don't have a say over the church, you know, at all. 
Um, so there are uh, a lot of um, negatives to it. Uh, our current Pope, Pope Francis, is somebody um, who does see a lot of negatives to the, that power structure and has tried to um, reform it and, and, may, and spread the power out a little bit more um, broadly and to you know, bring the laity into it. That would probably be where I am. I, I'm a big fan of Pope Francis, and I, I don't want, I don't think the church should get rid of its structure because that's one of the things that makes it what it is. But we need to reform that structure to make it more compatible for a democratic age, and to to make sure that there the kind of abuses that were allowed that you know sort of started the Catholic sex scandal, you know, can't be. Uh, can't happen again. And that's not going to be the case unless there's some fundamental reforms to how the church, you know, operates to make it more democratic and put some checks and balances in there. Yeah. In some ways, like, uh, you know, your average non-denom church goes through the same, uh, like, possible problems with abuse and power troubles that the Catholic church does. The difference is the scale, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, in your microcosm, way worse things can happen that might go up you know the problem is maybe the secrecy maybe the like you're you're not on anybody's radar because you're a small church so you can get away with more and that and be held less accountable but you might be able to not only do so much damage whereas the catholic church it's pretty hard to get away with anything for too long eventually it'll be found out because it's so big but it's gonna cause a lot of damage yeah, exactly. I mean, the Catholic Church is so big, it's in so many different countries that when things go wrong, it can have ripple effects, you know, literally over the entire world. Yeah. Um, so so let's go back to some of the differences, though, between Protestants and Catholics. Are are there any, I, I know there are, so what are some of the differences between how these groups uh, view the afterlife? Yeah, those differences can be um, sometimes pretty big as well. Um, so the standard evangelical idea, you know, again, if you ever say all Protestants, all evangelicals believe X, it, it can never be true because there's always going to be diversity. But by and large, you know, most evangelicals believe that if they accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, they're going to heaven when they die. And, and well, that's that's pretty much it. Um, salvation is kind of just assured and we're going right right up there. Uh, Catholics um, don't exactly have that idea. Part of the reason is because um, Catholics put uh, your works and your actions as a bigger factor in salvation than Protestants do. And that's a foundational difference because that's one of the things that was uh, that the Protestant Reformation was about. Uh, Protestants assuming that salvation is by faith alone and Catholics uh, assuming that um, salvation is by um, faith and works together. That has proved to be a pretty intractable conflict because there's many parts of the Bible that seem to be saying both of those things. <laughs> so it's very hard to resolve. Um, but the the Catholic idea is, um, for one, Catholics have a concept of a completely different place, purgatory. That has a very doom and gloom um, kind of word to it. And part of that is justified because many Catholics have kind of made purgatory out to be an incredibly scary place. But um, Catholics emphasize more your actual moral purity. So there's the idea that we have to, you know, we, we're probably not going to be ready to go to heaven when we die because we're not perfect yet. We're still flawed. We're still sort of, a, you know, have all these issues that are wrong with us. 
And so purgatory is kind of put in there as this place where you go to get sorted out and be ready for heaven um, after this life. But Catholics, you know, think that this might be a real trial. And so for Catholics, it's like at death, there's still work to be done, most likely. As opposed for Protestants, you know, for many of them, once you've accepted Jesus as your savior, savior, you know, that's it. You're really just kind of waiting to to die so you can go to heaven in a, in a certain sort of way. As opposed to, to Catholicism, there's there's going to have to be a lot of effort to to get you to heaven, so to speak. Right. Um. Correct me if I'm wrong. Technical word sanctification. Do Catholics generally believe sanctification is after death or during life? Both. Yeah, very much both. Um, So it's salvation is just a process that starts now and ends once you finally get to heaven, but not necessarily when you die. Um, It's going to continue on until you um, until you are like Christ, until you're perfect as your heavenly father is perfect as it were. Gotcha. That makes sense. Um, And like, I don't, you know, views on the afterlife always kind of crack me up like you alluded to earlier you are you're a universalist i'm a who knows kind of guy i'm like i mean doesn't matter like i I can't know (laughs) um and so um yeah that's that's afterlife's always a little tricky but yeah you're right like and 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 catholics don't actually i mean they, they acknowledge hell as a place but they don't quite emphasize it the way that protestants and evangelicals do well, it it really depends because there's a lot of groups or uh, little cliques in the Catholic Church in America, particularly where hell does have a massive. Um, it's there massively, and there's there used to be a lot of stereotypes about sort of Irish Catholicism was was obsessed with with hell. You see that in sort of the the novels of um, James Joyce, like the, the portrait of an artist as a young man, where this kind of this obsessive fear of hell kind of is over him. So hell can definitely um, be very visible in some parts of Catholicism, but, and historically that's very much the case, but the thing is um, the recent popes, you know, the, the last four or five popes, Pope Francis, Pope Benedict XVI, Pope John Paul II, have had extremely optimistic views of humanity's salvation. Um, they haven't been necessarily out and out total universalists, but they very much left that door open and have emphasized the universality of Christ's mercy, the fact that non-Christians can be saved. Pope Benedict went so far as to say that the vast majority of humanity would be saved. And so all of that has kind of had the effect of lessening the importance of hell in Catholic life, but at the same time, it's still very much there. And among more conservative um, Catholics, it can be a very, very scary and very active force. Gotcha. Thank you for that clarification. That's that's actually very helpful. Um, yeah. So and th- so we've talked a lot about the differences. There's obviously some basic commonalities, right? Like they both worship Jesus, right? Like, yeah. Like <laughs> the, probably probably the thing to emphasize the most. Um, you know, they both they don't both believe in a virgin birth in general. Um, you know, there's uh they they both believe in a literal resurrection. Um yes. you know, there there's there's some fundamental things specifically when you get back to the originator of Christianity, if you will, Christ, whether he meant to or not is up for debate, but but he is certainly the the commonality between Catholics and Protestants. Is that fair to say? Oh yeah, absolutely. There, you know, you can use the very, very famous phrase of C.S. Lewis, mere Christianity, this, yes, this 
Catholics and Protestants, you know, they are in the same religion and there is uh, a foundational um, fundamental um, agreement that they have about a lot of those key issues. Most importantly, that the defining uh, element of Christianity, they both believe that, you know, Jesus Christ is, is God and man and is the, is the savior of, of humanity and that he died on a cross, rose again, you know, those, that the, the idea of the Trinity, the incarnation, there's going to be that huge commonality. And it's, it's important to emphasize that because it is possible to make too much of the differences. And it's also possible to make too little of the differences, but foundationally, you know, this is two sides of the same coin. This is two, you know, different theological, cultural, historical expressions of one underlying religious belief, the belief in Jesus Christ. Yeah. And this is stuff we would have, uh, or excuse me, they would have in common with uh, Eastern Orthodox and uh, basically anything under the Orthodox Christianity umbrella. Oh, yeah. I, um, I'll i try not to go on a tangent here because I, I love orthodoxy. Um, I love um, Eastern Orthodoxy. But um, the, the commonalities between um, Catholics and Orthodox are, are very, very, very high, uh, much higher than um, uh, the, the commonality between Catholics and, and Protestants. Um, and frankly, in, in my own, you know, sort of personal opinion, the majority of the things that people uphold as differences between Orthodox and Catholics aren't even really actual differences at all when you look closely. So there's, there's a really strong, um, commonality between, um, Catholics and, and Orthodoxy so much so that it is very much conceivable that within our lifetimes, at least some aspect of. Uh, some element of orthodoxy could, you know, be reunifying with the Catholic Church in, under some uh, guise. Um, so there's a lot of of deep commonality there. Yeah, it would be very interesting to see um, because we're talking about basically, uh, you know, a, a grand <laughs> a thousand years of uh, of beef that, and it would be very interesting. There have been moves um, for for uh, a repaired relationship there, so it's very fascinating. Yeah. Um, the, the, in fact, in the, the current crisis, the current war between Russia and Ukraine is speeding up that process because there is kind of a separation in the Orthodox world now between the Russian Orthodox Church uh, and many of the other Orthodox churches. And the effect of that is that some of the other Orthodox churches are drawing, as they draw away from the Russian Orthodox Church, are drawing closer to the Catholic Church. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see how it turns out. So so obviously we can't talk about all the differences and all the history of Protestantism and Catholicism or else we'd be here for, you know, 600 years. <laughs> um, so but but on a scale of one to 10, let's do it this way. You know, one being like completely different religions and 10 being, um, you know, the exact same thing. How would you uh, rate the differences between Catholicism and Protestantism? Probably a six. I mean, there's there's real substantial differences, not only in terms of how things look, but in terms of how you think, feel, act, and, and are in the world as a Christian under, under those two different guises. But still that fundamental, you're, you're still sort of, uh, you're standing in the same place as it were, but you're, you're inhabiting two different modes of being and of how to be there. Yeah. Uh, I I think I am almost completely in agreement with you. I I don't think I would I would challenge that at all. Um, 
you know, I, I, even as a, as a, as a young, even, even in the church you and I attended, uh, I really hated the Catholic hating because it didn't make any sense to me. Cause I <laughs> was, I was just perceiving, I was like, these are Christians, right? Like the, the rhetoric you and I heard certainly made it sound like now, granted, this is not most evangelicals, but I've right. actually heard from a lot of people in like evangelical colleges that supposedly welcome Catholics, that Catholics are kind of othered by evangelicals and Protestants a lot. And that was certainly the case in the church you and I went to. Yes, I would love to be able to say right now that I was revolted by um, the anti-Catholic rhetoric that we, we saw there, but in fact, I was not. I was very much cheering it on. I was I was whole hog for that uh, up until the time that I started to to have you know doubts about it. Um, but yeah, very very much so. I agree. Yeah, yeah, and uh, no no shame on you. You were you were young, dude. Um, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like uh, you know, it's it's I I I think the reason it bothered me, you know, some of my closest friends were Catholic. And uh, I even I even told um, the leadership of that church once I was like, you know, I'd be more comfortable inviting an atheist here than a Catholic, like, which I just thought was such an interesting juxtaposition. Now, in retrospect, I'm like, I should have been comfortable inviting any person there. So that's pointing like a pretty serious problem. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think at a lot of churches, there's there's sort of this attitude of, oh, the Catholics, they're the ones who like worship Mary and 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 suck on incense or whatever they think. And so like <laughs> they don't re- I think there's like this really like um, there's almost this ignorant I- ignorance towards it, I guess. Yeah, well, there's this really um, there's this habit in a very, very common, very, very prevalent from the top down in evangelicalism that. Basically, the word Christian means conservative evangelical Protestant, but that is like 9% of, don't quote me on that, it's like a small fraction of what Christianity is worldwide, um, because I forget the exact statistic, but I think Protestants themselves are only about you know 35, maybe 37% of what Christianity as a whole makes up, and of that, conservative evangelicals are an even smaller piece Last I checked, it was 6%. Yeah. Yeah, there's almost no awareness in contemporary American evangelicalism that Christianity is way, way more different and diverse than that. And um, Catholics and Orthodox are even together make up over 50% of of Christianity. And you wouldn't know it from a lot of evangelical um, discourse. And, you know, a lot of... um, and I'm not necessarily critiquing them for this because everybody has a right to, to do their own thing. But a lot of um, a lot of Protestant missionary work actually is going to just Catholic and, and Orthodox countries. And there's not really an awareness to them that, you know, they kind of just assume, you know, all those people are lost. There's not really an awareness that most of those countries have had some version of Christianity very, very um, very much a part of their culture for hundreds and hundreds and sometimes thousands of years. Yeah, it's certainly a very narrow view. Do you think evangelicals are even aware that one, they're Protestant by nature, or two, how complex the evolution of church and the Christian faith has been? No, I don't think so. Yeah. Because, um, I mean, just, you know, my experiences are just my own, but, you know, Sometimes, you know, when I talk about, you know, the diversity of church history and things, you can get, you know, some shocked expressions, I think, from evangelicals in America. There's not there's not a whole lot of emphasis on on anything that would be conducive to learning about the church history or the complexity of of Christianity 
um, in today's world, which is just growing more complex, just growing um, more diverse. Um, I think, you know, the evangelicals tend to think that Christianity is a whole lot more monolithic than it is, or just to assume that people that don't do it their way are just kind of crazy. Yeah. And I think that's purposeful, uh, personally. I mean, I think that's bred in. I mean, because, you know, if you start looking at church history, it doesn't exactly make you excited to go to church, to be honest. Um, it, it does definitely does not. <laughs> well, it's not grabby. You know, it's really fun to kind of, like you were alluding to earlier, like turn your brain off, you know, and like kind of have a break from the complexity of life. And I think that's something that's very appealing about evangelicalism is how freaking simple it is. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that's a huge draw. So uh, so it might be kind of a, a willful ignorance, if you will, to be like, listen, I don't want to think about this because if I do, I won't have this uh, comfort anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's there's certainly a, a truth to that. Many people have commented that, you know, Christianity sometimes struggles to simplify itself. You know, so they a lot of people talk about, you know, in the developed world, kind of Christianity in places where it competes with Islam. You know, Islam is a lot more easier to understand in, in certain ways, you know, in the sense that a lot of its more fundamentals can be explained so easily as opposed to Christianity. You know, there's not a single Christian ever that has ever not struggled with explaining the Trinity, which is supposed to be the foundation of the of the faith. And so evangelicals are. I think very good at, despite of that, in spite of that, finding a way to make Christianity sort of easier to understand and sort of just, you know, not as intellectually complex. Yeah, I mean, evangelicals are really great at not even talking about the Trinity unless it's helpful, you know, um, but, which it frankly rarely is um, <laughs> as far as uh, in convincing anyone of anything. Um but they they're great at you know emphasize uh, at their Christology at just emphasizing Christ and not worrying about the Father and the Holy Spirit so much, or right. being like yeah the, the God of the Old Testament the God of the New you know say stuff like that, um, yeah so but here's a question um because um well well first I'll ask I'll ask this question because you might have a different perspective than I on this do you think Catholics are just as exclusionary as evangelicals or no well. In practice, they can be. Um, institutionally, it's it's a little bit more difficult. What I mean is that, yeah, in in American Catholic American Catholicism is very conservative. So if you're if you're talking about Catholicism worldwide, uh, the American Church is uh, a part of the Catholic Church that's always trying to push a more conservative um, mindset out there. And part of that has to do with the fact that America is more religiously conservative as a whole, and because of the ways that evangelical Protestants have actually begun to influence um, American Catholics. But so there can be a lot of uh, very, very um, exclusionary um, teaching, praxis, and ideology in, in the American um, Catholic Church, especially when it begins to intersect with politics and and sort of um, the American political um, religious um, structure. Institutionally, though, it is sometimes a little bit harder because, again, you know, the Catholic Church is an international organization, and a lot of the people at the top of the Catholic Church in the hierarchy, especially in, in the Vatican surrounding the Pope, try to emphasize a much less um, exclusionary mentality. 
And so a lot of American Catholics with a more conservative mindset have been really undermined by the the leadership of the church, like Pope Francis, you know, emphasizing a more um, open sort of mentality. So a famous example of this is not long after Pope Francis was elected as Pope, you know, he was on a plane, he was asked about um, gay marriage or, or gay couples, and he responded by just saying, you know, who am I to judge? Um really famous remark and that kind of thing undermined you know a lot it undermines the ability of catholics to be exclusionary um or exclusive as they sometimes would like to be so i remember when this happened there were a lot of churches that around here that i went to that the priest would say now the pope didn't really mean that you know yada 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 um so there's this institutional press, pressure especially under pope francis for the church to be more open, more, more loving, less exclusive in that sense. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that much of American Catholicism can, can still be very dogmatic, very closed off, very conservative, uh, just as much as, as some parts of evangelicalism are. Yeah, that makes sense. I think there's, yeah, kind of, there's kind of a both and, right? Like I, I do agree that like in some ways institutionally, and worldwide, I view Catholicism as like um, more organic, so it can kind of grow and change with culture a little easier than evangelicalism, because evangelicalism is kind of a pocket of a subculture. So <laughs> it, yep. it, it it can't really like adapt in kind of this. Um, its boundaries can't expand that much or else it ceases to be what it is. <laughs> so, uh, whereas Catholicism can because it, because it is so broad. Exactly. And you know that not to go on a tangent, but I wanted to ask you because that brings, it brings, it segues into this perfectly. Have you ever read the, the book, uh, the Poisonwood Bible? I have not. No, it deals with basically exactly what, what you just described because it's, it's about um, a family of evangelical missionaries from Georgia um, that go to Africa and try to convert some native people there, and they're just not able to adapt it to a different culture at all. <laughs> and um, I think there's some truth to that in the sense that sometimes, you know, evangelicalism can leave a stamp of just, it can just kind of be indelibly American, especially since the majority of evangelical missionaries in the world, I think are coming out of America. Catholicism is a lot more comfortable with cultural differences and cultural adaptations. And when you go to places where, where Catholicism is, is really a part of the culture, like, you know, Colombia or Italy or, or the Philippines, you'll see something that's that's a lot more ingrained with the way the people um, live there and can kind of re- reflect the people around them a little bit better. And that's at least one thing I would say is is a strength to Catholicism. Yeah, I agree uh, wholeheartedly. Um, I'll have to look up that book. That looks very interesting to me for many reasons. Um... Oh, I think you I think you would really enjoy that book. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll definitely give it a read. Um, you know what's funny though is often you know I have a, a podcast and a book both titled "The Cult of Christianity," right? Um, and so people a lot of the time they'll go, "Oh, did you grow up Catholic?" or like they'll assume something about Catholicism. And it, at first, this struck me as odd, but the more I thought about it, I was like, "Well, maybe this is because like modern day when we kind of associate the word cult with like." rituals or like the idea of people like doing something ritualistic you know with candles around or something 
Um, and I actually do believe that, you know, repetitive rituals can absolutely be a tool for cultists. Um, but I don't really think that Catholicism, it's certainly not more cultish than evangelicalism. I don't, I don't think that. Um, do you think they're equally susceptible to being cult-like or do you think evangelicalism is more cultish? That's a difficult question. Um, I think maybe it, again, it goes back to that institutional thing where because of at least, you know, with the leadership of the church that we have have now with someone like Pope Francis makes it harder. But nevertheless, there are massively cultish Catholic um, subgroups, particularly in the United States, that are absolutely just as strange as you would find in the most um, strange corners of, of evangelicalism. And a lot of those people are people that define themselves specifically in opposition to, for instance, Pope Francis and his leadership vision for the church. So there's a lot of, um, they'll call themselves uh, trads or Catholic traditionalists. You know, I, I, again, I'm not meaning to defame anyone. I'm not trying to say that everybody that ever calls themselves that is, is a cult-like person. But it's undeniable that in in, Amer- in the more traditional um, parts of American Catholicism, there can be some really strange sort of um, bizarre stuff. You can get a lot of conspiracy theories. Uh, uh, Catholics have um, a particular um, fascination with, you can find a lot of um, Marian apparition conspiracy theories in, in Catholicism, and there can be a lot of those sort of weird corners uh, where things kind of um, lurk. But it it's definitely more of a subculture because that kind of thing is not something that's typically going to be supported by a bishop or by the higher um, echelons of the Catholic hierarchy. But it definitely is a powerful force um, in American um, Catholicism, this sort of traditional wing of the church that can, can, be, can be a little bit much um, sometimes. Okay, that that sounds like a pretty honest answer to me. I, I'll challenge you just a little bit more on it before we get out of here. Because um, <laughs> d- d- cause, cause my, so people ask me, well, what do you mean by the word cult a lot, right? And sometimes I'm like, I don't know. I mean, whatever I want that day. Um, but no, <laughs> what, I, <laughs> what, I actually, what I actually do mean, um, so there's indicators and then there's, there's more, I have more indicators than like a hard, fast definition. So I'm like, my three alliterative, indicators are control contain convert so i'm like are they trying to control people are they containing people and are they encouraging conversionism or have some sort of relationship with conversionism um those are indicators but another indicator i talk about a lot is just this idea of leaders and followers and so what strikes me more about the catholic church is like you were alluding to earlier that like hard line distinction between leaders and followers do you think that plays into any kind of cult-like behavior or or am I just assuming that based on my experience? No, I think it does. So, you know, there's um, a word that Catholics sometimes use and Pope Francis uses it as a derogatory word, which is um, clericalism, which is um, this sort of mentality where people, because of that hard, that hard distinction between, um, you know, uh, the, the laity and um, the priest that there becomes this huge deference to, to the priest where they become this, this powerful figure that can kind of get away with anything. And that sort of plays into a lot of the foundations for why the, the sex abuse scandal happened in Catholicism to begin with, because there was 
too much deference to priests because of that distinction where they could kind of get away with manipulating people and, and sort of doing whatever they wanted because that religious distinction created such a such a presumption of their holiness of their authority that that it kind of created a, a it created the ability of priests to have their own little cult you know so where a priest could go into a parish and kind of try to control um the the people in there uh but if you look at it from a more a wider perspective if you, uh, i forget what were the three things you said again it was control or conversion um refresh my memory control con- control contain convert control contain convert yeah but for the for the church kind of where it is right now it the control is not a word that can be easily um applied to the catholic church right now and i'll compare it with kind of what we experienced at the sort of the the evangelical um protestant church that we were a part of you know when we were there, I know you've relayed stories where, you know, the, the elders of the church were sitting you down for conversations and, you know, we're trying to uh, exercise influence over you to get you back on the right path. And, and um, there's, you know, they can, you know, there's this idea where they can excommunicate people for, for not doing the right thing. That kind of thing is not really something you will see in the Catholic church really in the 21st century, you know. Catholics kind of, even though there's this teaching and it's and it's echoed, individual Catholics kind of just do what they want. Like if you look at surveys of Catholics, you know, not very many Catholics in America follow the church teaching very well. People kind of, Catholics tend, if they're Catholic, they tend to view participation in the church as their right. And, you know, there are many Catholics who you know, huge numbers who have no problem participating in the church's rituals, even though they, they, um, you know, if they might believe that abortion is morally acceptable or they, they, you know, many other divergences. And so it's hard to apply the word control to the Catholic church when there's just so much of people just, people just really do what they want in the American Catholic church. And the hierarchy never really tries to control people in the same kind of way. Does that make sense? I think it does. I I've I've certainly heard stories of uh Catholic churches being pretty overbearing, but I'll I'll I will I will acknowledge that structurally it is a very different thing. Yeah, and I I will agree with you. I don't want to to I know that there are many priests who have tried to control people. So I don't want to I don't want to deny that there are um a lot of people in the church out there who will try to control people. But I just wanted to try to affirm that there is kind of, there's an entire sort of cafeteria Catholic, as it were, culture where it's, it's not at all abnormal for people to um, sort of have their own opinions, but continue to participate in Catholic um, liturgical life. And it would be considered by most people pretty, bizarre to see a priest trying to sort of exercise levels of control over people, even though I don't deny and would absolutely affirm that there are many priests who do try to do that and do do things like that. Yeah, I, I agree with you um, because, you know, uh, uh, it's almost like, uh, well, uh, here's, here's a way you could, here's kind of a joke that you could tell to illustrate the differences. Uh, you can't go to an evangelical church for more than two weeks without three people knowing your name. You can go to a Catholic church for two years and the person you've sat next to might not know your name. 
That is 100% true. Yeah, so the 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 element of like kind of this mafia family or whatever like that you kind of get the feeling of in evangelicalism that's that's not really present in Catholicism from my estimation. Exactly. And part of the reason is just because of kind of size differences because I mean, you know, the kind of churches that you and me were a part of, that is very much a subculture. You know, there is there's not like a big me- megatropolis city that I can think of that's 40% Reformed Presbyterian, you know, it's it's more of a, a sort of a smaller thing. But, you know, there are places, you know, even in America, like you think of a place like Boston, Massachusetts, right? That's a very liberal city, a very large city that despite being very liberal and very large is also a very, very Catholic city. And so because of things, because of the just how widespread it is, and because often Catholic areas are very, very liberal, like, you know, like Boston, you know, Massachusetts, a very democratic state, there, there's a certain ethos that sort of comes out of that, where it's just very common for, for that level of, of sort of, you know, pick and choosing in, in Catholicism. There's a whole culture kind of involved in that. Yeah. So, so that makes sense why you're able to, you know, not dissociate from Catholicism completely, even where you might differ from the mainstream or whatever. Um, right. You know, that that makes sense that you're like I'm not part of a cult. Uh, I'm not sure if you are or not. I'm I'm still wrestling through my perspective on the Catholic Church, uh, but I can certainly say, obviously, the cult, quote unquote, quoting myself, that I that I'm most concerned with is definitely white American evangelicalism. Right. And I w- where my critiques overlap to other branches of Christianity. Yay! I'm more right than I mean to be. Um, but, uh, but that's, that's definitely the, the group I'm, I'm more, um, concerned with myself. That's understandable, especially given the state of American politics and the, the impact that, that evangelicals often have over it. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, Patrick, this is the time I usually ask someone to, to plug away or mention a charity, but for you, I thought it might be fun to ask, are there any, uh, good books you would recommend for someone interested in these topics? Um, even though this is kind of um, outside the topic of what we've been talking about exactly, but it does play into it in the sense of it goes back to um, wanting uh, a Christianity that is that is more um, more merciful, more um, more tolerant. There's a book by a theologian um, named um, David Bentley Hart. And the title of the book is, um, quote, that all shall be saved, unquote. I would recommend that because, as I mentioned earlier, I love universalism. And so I can't refuse an opportunity to plug for something universalistic. Um, If we're thinking about something specifically um, more in line of um, Catholicism, uh, I would rec if if you want a book that presents... um, sort of Christianity or specifically Catholicism in a more positive light, um, I would probably recommend um, a book called uh, Alive in God, A Christian Imagination by Timothy Radcliffe. Um, or if not that, anything Pope Francis writes. Awesome. Yeah, I, I knew it wouldn't disappoint. I knew you'd have something ready to go. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Patrick, thank you so much for coming on. It was good to catch up and also just great to hear your thoughts. And, and you definitely helped me out with this. Uh, you you were spoke well to these issues much better than I could have. Oh, absolutely. I, I loved it. And so thank you very much for having me on. And anytime you want me back on, just just give me a shout. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you, listener, for stopping by. I'll talk to you all soon. If you wish to learn more about what's going on in my life or wish to purchase my book, go to thecultofchristianity.com. If you'd like to support this podcast, please continue to listen, follow, share, and consider subscribing for additional content. For only five bucks a month, you'll have access to two additional shows, Parsing Propaganda, where I review and critique Christian content, and Art, where we try some amateur religious trauma therapy. Every subscriber becomes a part of something bigger than this podcast as we endeavor to hold churches accountable, speak the truth boldly, and most importantly, love others despite our pain. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep love in your life, hope in your heart, and searching in your soul. 